Um, it's good to be, be, be with you all. Uh, if you were here last week, we had the privilege of hearing Tito preach, and so I was grateful for the week off, and I'm excited to be back with you. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can take it out and open it to the letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we will have the words projected. Uh, if you have one on your phone, that's more than welcome. You can turn that on, swipe that on however you want, but uh, we, we do just preach through the Bible here. We believe that that's God's authoritative word for us. We don't have to really make up what we should be talking about. The Bible gives us plenty, uh, plenty to dwell on. So we're in Ephesians chapter 4 today. Uh, this week, I, uh, I dabbled in, a, in an app on my phone. It's called Fitness Pal. Some of you are familiar with Fitness Pal. I usually open this app up about every four or five months when I'm feeling like uh, fitness is a good idea. Uh, if you're not familiar with Fitness Pal, this is a calorie tracking app. And so you, you tell it, you know, what you eat, and it tells you how bad it was, and then you kind of, it helps you reach your goals, supposedly. Well, at the beginning of that app, it, it asks you, um, it asks you about your lifestyle, and it gives you different options. You're either, you're very inactive, you're like a li- moderately active, or you're very active, and kind of so on and so forth. And, and every, every time I open this app and, and tell it my weight goals or whatever I'm trying to do, um, it always asks me that question, and I always try to convince myself that I'm more active than I am. Uh, I always ask Heather, like, is my lifestyle pretty active? And she's like, Adam, yes, you work out, but you sit down and read and you're on your computer most of the day, you know? And I'm like, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm lightly inactive. I mean, lightly active, what am I? And so there's this, this kind of, this realm of activity that I have to come to grips with. Um, Ephesians actually, uh, we're, we're, we're taking a, a turn. We're kind of rounding a corner in the letter here. We're in, we're in chapter four now. And, uh, Depending on your, your kind of encounter and your engagement with Christianity, you've probably either hung out in one or two areas of, of, of Christianity, and, and it goes like this. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is, is a lot of doctrine. It's a lot of theology. It, it tells us who we are in Christ. And so it's very heavy on, on kind of the doctrine side of things. Uh, Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 actually is more of the, the kind of application, like how to live in light of the truths that we've just been told. Um, as a Christian, our activity level should be high. We should not have this sedentary lifestyle. And, and, and again, depending on your uh, kind of engagement with Christianity, you've either been on the heavy doctrine side, which should make you a very sedentary type of Christian. You like to sit and read a lot. You do theology, those kinds of things, or you've been on the heavy activity side of things, right? It's, it's all about what do we do. It's all about life application. How do I live like a Christian? Those kinds of things. My hope is that as we continue through the, the letter to the Ephesians, that, that we would actually marry those two ideas, that we would know who we are in Christ, that we would have the heavy theology, and then we would learn what it means to live in light of that. And so we're moving into a section in Ephesians where it's going to emphasize the living in light of who we are. And that has everything to do with biblical Christianity. You see, empty moralism just tells us to do, do, do. Biblical Christianity tells us to do, 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 but only in light of who you are in Christ. So let's look at our, our section that we're going to consider today in chapter 4 of Ephesians. I'm going to read, begin reading in verse 1, going down through verse 16. Again, you can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Um, so that's, uh, that's the Bible of choice that we've, we've chosen here. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, going down through verse 16. Paul writes, 
I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, the, song, the words of the last song we sang are still ringing in our, in our heads and hearts. We need you. Lord, we need you. And we certainly need you now as we approach your word. Lord, left to ourselves, this is nothing more than literature to be analyzed. But Lord, when you show up in it, it is the very inspired word of the living God to his people. And so, Lord, I pray that you would feed your people today on your word, that you would use this communicator to speak the words of the living God so that your people might be built up. We pray this thing, these things in Christ's name. Amen. The... Um, the culture that we live in is, is drastically changing. It's always kind of this ebb and flow, uh, and, and we, we see that the change is occurring in the way that, that people market to us, right? Marketing and campaigners, they, they understand how we tick as people and what's going to get us to respond to their product. Uh, one, one great telling kind of migration of us as a culture is actually the army, uh, for those of you that may or may not be familiar with the Army, Army and all of the branches of our military always have a slogan to engage people to, for service. Uh, back, back early on, uh, the, the Army, during kind of the World War I, World War II era, their slogan was, we want you. Right? Remember that? Uncle Sam pointing at you, saying, we want you. Kind of provoking in us this duty to service and, and this challenge to service. Well, as time kind of went on and, and culture changed, uh, the Cold War era kind of approach, in 1980, the, the Army changed their slogan, and their next slogan was, be all that you can be. Remember that one? That's a warm picture, the parents by the airplane, you know, like sending their son off. Be all that you can be. That, that was kind of provoking this, this self-actualization in people, right? 
Again, just this, this appeal to the, you'll be a better person if you, if you serve with the army. Well, yet again in 2001, the slogan of the army changed and it changed to an army of one. Remember that one? It's, I, think, I think this is still the army slogan if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. An army of one appealed to the individual. It was individualism at its finest, and, and I'm sure that that motto kind of crumpled, you know, kind of day two of, of boot camp, but nonetheless, uh, army, army of one was what would provoke the individual to serve. It, it was about me. It was about my attainments and my service, and, and it, it's really just telling of, of who we are as a culture. It's all about me. You see, the church is not... Um, it's not exempt from the culture that's influencing it. The church is, has been and, and continues to be this individually kind of minded thing. And, and the Bible's really pushing us against that. Uh, for instance, it, it, when, we, when we're in, maybe if we move to a new city and we're looking for a new church, maybe, maybe that's even you today. Thank you for being here, by the way. When, when we're doing that, what do we call that? When we're going from church to church, kind of week to week looking for a church? We call that church shopping. That's right. We call that church shopping. We're going out and we're shopping churches. We're checking out what the churches have to offer us. And, and there is validity to that. Trust me. There is, there is good reasons for you to assess a church for your family and all that. But the primary question when we are church shopping is, what does this church have to offer me? It's individualism. When perhaps the Bible would suggest a different question when you're church shopping, namely, what do I have to offer this church? You see, Ephesians chapter 4 is going to give us a picture of what a healthy church looks like, a healthy body that God is, is building. Here's my goal in preaching this passage to you today is to, to kind of leave you with two things. I want you to feel your need for why you need the church and also to feel the need for why the church needs you. And so I've, I've summarized it in this statement. Only when you feel your need for the church will you see the church's need for you. And, and it's always in that order. Feeling your need for the church first, then you will see the church's need for you. Kind of before we dive into the text and I, and I pull out some points that I want to express, let me just do a quick side note and define church because that's just such a loaded term, and everybody's bringing their own understanding of what I'm talking about when I say church. When I'm using the word church, here's, here's what I'm drawing from. The word church that's used in the New Testament is, is the word ecclesia. So just a simple word, and it means called out ones. That's all the word means, called out ones. So when the Bible, and, and me using the Bible's term church, uses that word, they are simply referring to people who have been called out of something and brought into something. They've been called out of the world and brought into the church. Uh, so so here's, here's how I would just kind of put it, just a couple of categories for you to understand the church. The church is people who no longer live under the, the kingly rule of the world, but now have submitted to the kingly rule of Jesus. And so the church, the people, not a building, the people are people who have come under the loving care and rule of Jesus as the head over them, okay? So, so the description in Ephesians 4 is speaking to a people who have professed that they no longer belong to the world, they now belong to Jesus. And now their lives are going to reflect that. 
And so that's what I mean by the church, and that's what this passage is going to show us. Here's the thrust of the passage. It's really logical, and I really like it. Um, uh, it, it works like this. The, the overall banner for the passage is this, unity. Unity in the church. So it's, it's unity in the church that's expressed through diversity and then leads to maturity. Let me say that one more time. Unity that's expressed through diversity that leads to maturity. So those are my three points. Unity, diversity, maturity. That's what we're going to look at today. Let's first consider unity in verses 1 through 6. As we engage this passage in our 21st century minds, we have to be asking ourselves, is unity really a thing? Like, is that really possible with all of the scattered and fractured denominations that, that we are a part of? And, and, and Christianity as we know it today, is this even a possibility? And my answer to that question would be, it's not only a possibility, it's actually an expectation. Uh, when we get to kind of the second point, we talk about diversity, that's where the role of denominations may come in. But, but unity is not just possible, it's expected of us. The Bible expects us to be united in the church. So, so what does pursuing unity in the church look like? Well, the text tells us, and it, it puts some categories on it for us, beginning in verse 2, it says that we are to pursue humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Let me touch on those briefly. Humility. Pride is actually the root of disunity. Pride is the preference of self over others. Humility is to be the heartbeat of the local church, a preference for others, a consideration for others more than yourself. Humility is distasteful to the world. Humility is not something that is prized and praised in the world, but it's to be the heartbeat of the church. The second thing that Paul identifies is to be in the church is gentleness. Now, when you hear the word gentleness, I think you hear the word weakness, right? When, when Jesus talked about the meek shall inherit the earth, I think we read that and we think that's, you know, soft and flimsy. Jesus is promoting this kind of thing where the church just lays down and is trampled over when the exact opposite is true. Gentleness, the way the Bible uses the word, is actually somebody who can control their strength. It's somebody who's willing to actually let go of their strength to prefer somebody else. I, I came across a quote, and, and I love it, from, from John Stott. He, he's, now, uh, he's now with Jesus. He's, he's no longer alive on the earth. But he wrote this in commenting on this passage. He said, It is the gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. It's the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. Do you hear that? So the gentle person in the church masters himself and serves others. That's a mark of a healthy church. The third thing we see is, is patience. <laughs> patience, long-suffering towards people that annoy you. It, right? It's this willingness to, to do life with people that aren't like you. And they might actually aggravate you. They get on your nerves. They'll let you down. They're not faithful. They're not perfect. Patience is the pursuit of people like that in, in, their, in their best interest for, the, for them. You know, patience is, is one of those things that I, I think without fail, 
were I to ask you to raise your hands, who, who, is, who f- struggles with patience? I, I think that's kind of one of those, we're going to be up there in the numbers, right? Like patience is a difficult thing. But the, the way the passage is actually going to touch on this next week, but it tells us to consider patience in light of how God's patient with us. In, in, in light of how God is long-suffering towards us and he's not quick to wrath towards us. That even in all of our peeves and all of our failures and all of our habits and hang-ups, God pursues us and loves us. That's what patience in the church looks like. And then finally, the overarching principle of love. The overarching principle of unity in the church is love. The act of love covers a multitude of sins, it says in 1 Peter. This is the heart and the, the marking traits of a healthy church. And so one of the questions that we must continually raise in our own minds is, is the Bible promoting unity at all costs? In other words, is it, is it promoting this let's just all kind of hold hands and get along kind of thing? And the text tells us no, because the glue that holds true biblical unity together is the glue of truth. Look how Paul in verse 4 elaborates on this. You, you see the sevenfold ones. I mean, you can't miss this. I, even, I think most translations pull this out even if you're not using mine. But it talks about being one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The, the, the glue of unity is found in truth, in, in doctrine. And so he promotes this idea that that those who can prefer others more than themselves and are bound together by truth are pursuing unity. And that's what a healthy, united church looks like. Here's what you need to apply for this first point today, is that unity in the church requires servants and not consumers. Unity in the church requires servants and not consumers. This passage pushes against the idea of consumerism in the church. And let me make this disclaimer kind of before I get on, get on the preaching box here. I am not railing against our church right now. Um, I'm actually, this is more preventative damage for the future than it is where we are now as a church. So one of my convictions as your pastor and, and primary teacher and preacher is to preach the Bible as it comes to us. And so this was what was next, and so this is what's getting preached. And so when you hear me, I'm gonna, I, I might hit some soft spots on you, and I'm okay with that. But hear me when I say this. This is not me railing against our young church, because honestly, this is not us right now, but it could be if we don't guard ourselves against it. So here's what guarding yourself against being a consumer in the church looks like. Maybe you're one of, I, I've kind of picked out four types of people that are, that are consumers, and, and, and you might be one of them. Um, The first one is the person who's constantly entertaining the thought, is this the church for me? Like always. You're always analyzing everything about all the the time. It's constantly, is this right? Is this right? Is this right? Are we doing this? Are we doing that? Why are we doing this? And it's it's the constant thought of, is this church the right one for me? That's kind of the, the air of consumerism. Or maybe you're the person that thinks the grass is greener at the other church. And so your tendency is to kind of linger in a church for a minute and then go check out the other one because they're doing some things. And there's never this rootedness. It's always that looking towards what's next or what's new. It, It sounds greener over there. They're doing some things. I should probably be over there. And you're never really rooted. Or maybe you're the person 
who complains about things that are lacking in the church, yet you're never willing to offer solutions to meet those needs. Right? Again, not railing against anybody. So if this is hitting you in the hard spot, that's the spirit, not me. Um, but but, but you're, you're complaining, but not providing. The fourth and final person that I'll pick on today that has a consumer, not a servant mentality is the people that attend and don't give and serve. Right? It, it, it's, it's a thing. Sun, Sunday, church is a thing to do not a community to belong in and to commit to and to invest in. I'm going I'm to tease out kind of at the end here what that might look like for you today. But Jesus actually obliterates consumerism. He does. I mean, he constantly turns it on its head. I just wanted to read a passage from, from Matthew chapter 20. Jesus called to his people and he said to his disciples, he said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, the church, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, that's the principle of the church, is to serve and to give your life for others. Unity in the church requires us to act more like servants than it does like consumers. Let's consider the second point, and that's diversity. One of the dangers of a passage like this is that you can hear me saying things like, unity is uniformity, and that's not true. Unity is not uniformity. In fact, it's the furthest thing from the truth. What the Bible promotes as unity is actually unity expressed through diversity, Diversity of the individual. Um, if you look at the way the passage reads, um, I'm back in verse uh, 7 and 8. Paul says that grace was given to each one of us, to believers, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then in verse 8 he says, therefore it says. So what Paul does is whenever the Bible says, therefore it says, or the Lord has said, that's a reference to the Old Testament. And so in order to prove Paul's point, that uniformity is not unity, that diversity actually is where uni unity is found, he quotes the Bible. And he quotes Psalm 68. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of Psalm 68. So Psalm 68 is what Paul quotes here. If you're reading it in your Bible, you'll notice it's kind of center-blocked a little bit. That means he's quoting the Old Testament, okay? So it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That is Psalm 68, verse 18. But Paul has done something significant with it. You see, Psalm 68, in its original context, is a description of the military victories that God gave to his people in their travel from Sinai to Jerusalem. And whenever a, a military victory occurred, the, the, the conquered people would always give gifts to the conquer, conqueror, right? It's kind of the, the booty of war stuff, right? They would take their belongings and it would be given to the new king. And so the way Psalm 68 reads is that God was the, the military victor for his people and the people gave gifts to God. But what Paul does with that verse here for us is he flips the script, he actually turns the psalm on his head to say not that people gave gifts to God, but now that God gave gifts to his people. And so what he's doing is he's saying there's been a new victory and the victory's in Jesus. What he's doing is he's using this old psalm to show us how Jesus is the new king 
and he's ruling and he's reigning and his first act of dominion was to give gifts to people. Uh, If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that in Acts chapter 2, this is after Jesus has lived, he's died, he's resurrected bodily, he spent time on the earth in in his resurrected body, and now he has ascended to heaven, and the Bible describes him as sitting at the right hand of God. And in Acts chapter 2 is one of the, one of the culmin, culminating acts in the entire Bible. That's when God, the Holy Spirit, is poured out on God's people. It is the supreme gifting of God's people, and it comes from Jesus the King. And so in that act in Acts 2, and here what he's describing for us is God showing that Jesus is the King who gives gifts to his people. He numbers a a, a variety of gifts in this passage. He says that it's the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Let me quickly touch on those because it's important that we understand what Paul's doing. He talks first about the apostles. Now, the word apostle is just, it just means sent one. So all of us as Christians on some level are sent. All of us are little A apostles is kind of the way I term it. But there were also big A apostles, The big A apostles, there were 14 of them. There were the 12 disciples, Matthias, who replaced Judas, one of the 12. And then there was Paul, who was an apostle. And then there was James, the brother of Jesus. So those were big A apostles, and those were the only big A apostles. There will never be any more big A apostles again. So if you had hopes and aspirations of being a big A apostle, we can just go ahead and get rid of that now. That was a one-time for the work of the church thing. And that's actually what Paul's referring to here. He's talking about the apostles who were sent to teach the doctrine of the gospel to the believers so that the church would be built up and we would have, as a result, the word of God that we're holding in our hands today. The second uh, gifting that he talks about is prophets. Now, prophets of old were people who heard God's word, sometimes, yes, literally and physically, and they spoke the word to God's people. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is that office, is that gift still in exercise? And the answer is both no and yes. So the answer is no, in that God no longer speaks verbally to prophets in order to profess a word because he's given us the written word. But the answer is yes, in that he doesn't inspire, but he does illuminate. And so God certainly speaks through his people today, and most accurately through his word as it's proclaimed. So we see the gift of prophecy given. We see the next gift is evangelist, a very easy word to understand. Evangelist is someone that just shared good news with people that needed it. So an evangelist was somebody that would proclaim the good news. It was actually a secular word, not even just a religious word, but it would be a declaration of good news for people that needed it. The fourth one is a shepherd teacher. It's probably one word. It's kind of a conjunction word. So it's a pastor teacher. So perhaps what we would, what we would coin a, a pastor today or whatever your tradition is, a teaching elder of sorts, but somebody who conveys the word of God to God's people. Now listen, this list is not exhaustive. Okay, so there are other places in Scripture, namely 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. If you're taking notes, you can jot those down. Those are the two places where there's a more extensive list of the gifts that God gives to his people. So the the point of this passage is that God has given gifts to his people to every single one of them. They're for every Christian, not just the elite few, not just the professionals. They're for all of us. All communications of the gospel are given for one reason, and that's in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
Um, here's, here's our application. Diversity in the church requires full participation for full functionality. Diversity in the church requires full participation for full functionality. Listen, it's football season, so it's right for me to pick some illustrations for there, so I'm going to go there. Um, most of us know that the quarterback is a very important position, right? We, we know, even if we're on foundational levels of what football is, you know the quarterback's important. Most of us, if you follow any level of football, know who the New England Patriots quarterback is, right? Tom Brady. You might know who the Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback is. Ben Roethlisberger, right? Do you know who the Dallas Cowboys quarterback is? Uh, is that too early? That's too early, huh? I'm sorry, that was too early. That was bad. The, the point is, we know the significance of the quarterback. But do you know the significance of the left tackle? The left tackle is perhaps the second most important position on that field because the role of the left tackle is to protect that quarterback from getting hit on his blind side. So I would probably venture out to say that none of us know the left tackle's name for our team. Maybe if you're diehard, you do. You know, my brothers probably do. They're diehard like that. But, but most of us don't know the left tackles of our teams. But they're just as important as the quarterback. Are they not? And so the Bible is showing us that very same thing. Here's a little trick for, for you to know. This actually gives my job description as your pastor. And so kind of using the illustration, you could probably view me as the quarterback on some levels, right? I, I have a voice up front. I get to guide and direct and cast vision and teach and all that kind of stuff. So, so I may be viewed as the quarterback on some levels. So my job is shown to you in verse 12. It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So my job is not to do ministry. It's actually to equip you to do ministry, so in the illustration, yes, I'm the quarterback, but you're the left tackle, and your role is just as significant as my role. Um, kind of pushing back on that consumerism model. Uh, I'm picking on the consumer model today. I'm just going to do it. Um, the consumerism model would sound something like this. Let's pay the professionals. Let's pay the quarterback, and they will do all of the ministry that we need done. They'll provide the, the goods and the services for the customer. But the biblical model of Christianity is actually that Jesus is the head of his church. He has given teachers and evangelists and shepherds in order to equip his people to now go and do the work of ministry. That's the, the, the model that the Bible appears to be presenting to me. And so here's, here's how I really want to just get nitty-gritty with some application for you. I need you to know today that you do have a gift. Every, if you're a believer today, if you're, if you're not a Christian, I'm going to kind of tease that out and what that might look for, like for you to become a Christian. But if, you're not, if you are a Christian today, you have a gift for the church that God gave you. And so one of the questions you need to ask yourself is how do I figure that out? How do I, I know what my gift is? And there's all kinds of assessments and tests we've come up with and we've overcomplicated it. Let me just make it real simple for you. You need to ask three different people questions. You need to ask God first. You need to ask God, God, what is my gift you've given me? Ask him, he'll show it to you. You need to ask yourself, what am I gifted at? What am I passionate about? What do I desire? What do I get excited about? And how does maybe perhaps my training or the way that God made me line up to serve in a way that that gift can serve the church? And then you need to thirdly ask other people. You need to ask other people in your life and in the life of the church, what do you think I'm good at? 
What do you see in me that perhaps could be used as, by God as a gift in the church? That, that is a great way to begin finding out what your gift is and how to use it. So unity in the church is expressed through the diversity of all the gifts that God has given us as a body. Well, what's the whole point of it? Well, the point of it is that it leads to maturity. So let's consider uh, maturity in verses 13 down through 16. Um, I was reading, or I, actually I've read this quote before and it kind of was provoked onto me by somebody else this week. Uh, it's, it's a quote from Harvey Kahn in the book Planting and Growing Urban Churches. Don't put it up yet. I don't want people reading it yet. Um, let me preface it. So it's a, it's a book on planting churches and why we plant churches and why it's important for us to start new churches and, and what, it, what it actually is. And, and in his book, Harvey Kahn, he brings out this great illustration of the church as a model home in the city. Y'all, y'all ever been in model homes? Now, now, model homes is like my wife's hobby. Um, she will go walk a model home just for fun on Saturday. Like, I don't get it, um, but she, she likes it. Um, but if you've been in a model home, it's kind of, it's that rare opportunity for you to go into something that's set up and look around what life might look like in that home, you know, to consider you know, the way it's decorated and set up. And, and you get to walk into the home and almost pretend like you live there for a minute, right? Well, Harvey Kahn, in this quote I'm going to read, it's, it's a lengthy quote, so hang in there with me. He describes the local church as a model home. Let's hear the quote. Here's what it says. It says, perhaps the best analogy to describe all of this is that of a model home. We are God's demonstration community of the rule of Christ in the unbelieving city. On a tract of earth's land purchased with the blood of Christ, Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun building new housing. As a sample of what will be, he has erected a model home of what will eventually fill the urban neighborhood. He now invites the world into that model home to take a look at what will be. The church is the occupant of that model home, inviting neighbors into its open door to Christ. Evangelism is when the signs are up saying, come in and look around. As citizens of, not survivalists in, this new city within the old city, we see our ownership as the gift of Jesus the builder. As residents, not pilgrims, we await the kingdom coming when the Lord returns from his distant country. The land is already his. In this model home, we live out our new lifestyle as citizens of the heavenly city that one day will come. We do not abandon our jobs or desert the city that is. We are to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which God has called us in exile. And our agenda of concerns, that seeking becomes as large as the cities where our divine development tracks are found. We want to be a model home for our city. We want this church to be a healthy place for people to see what life under the rule of Jesus could and should look like. We want others to come in and see the life and the picture of flourishing under Jesus' kingship. Life as it was always meant to do. And so what happens when you a church submits to the loving rule of Jesus in the way that Ephesians chapter 4 is suggesting that we do. Well, 
she matures, she grows, she prospers, lives are changed, the good news is declared, she is rooted and grounded in truth and love, she is unmoved. Did you notice the way that the, the, the passage talked about how uh, in verse 14 that we would no longer be children that were tossed to and fro by the waves, this, this picture of an unrooted people, but now that we would be mature, care, that we wouldn't be carried away by some fashion, flashing uh, wave of doctrine that comes along, that we would be rooted and grounded in truth by hum, human cunning, that we wouldn't be deceived by schemes of both the world and the enemy, that man-made religion would not influence us, that we would be faithful to what the word would call us to do and to be. Here's... Here's my sales pitch to you today. I want you to give yourself to the life of the church. Why? Well, because Jesus gave everything for her. That this ordinary thing that we call the local church is the organism of the kingdom of God on earth. It's so obscure and it seems so insignificant, but that is the way that King Jesus is building his kingdom. It's through the local church. For you to say, I love Jesus, but not the church, is like saying, I love Jesus, but not the things he loves. Jesus loves his church and he's building her in our midst right now. Let me close with this. Um, I was listening to a podcast this week and uh, it's called The Art of Manliness. Yeah, yeah I listened to a, a podcast called The Art of Manliness. It's a great, it's a blog and a podcast. They've just got a variety of topics. Anyway, I was listening to this podcast this week, and it was titled uh, The Art and Science of Loving the Place You Live. And so they were having this interview. It wasn't anybody famous, but they were just having this conversation about what it means to be in a city that you don't necessarily love, that, that might be new to you, whether work moved you there or whatever, family. And so you're in this place that's weird and new and it really doesn't have much of an impact on you and you don't love it. And so they're talking about how you can grow in your love for the place that you live. And they began talking kind of in the middle of the podcast about uh, what they called place attachment behaviors. It's kind of like a clinical term. It sounds very kind of wooden, but Place attachment behaviors, they listed a variety of things that you can do, practically speaking, in order to grow in your love for the city. And one of those behaviors they talked about was that you should walk in your city more than you drive in your city. Now, I realize we live in the suburbs, and that's not always really practical or, or useful, but, but I, I found the principle really provoking. It was this idea that the more you walk in a place, the more attached you become to it. So walking through your neighborhood and seeing people and parks and places, or, or if you're in the downtown area, you're walking and you're seeing places of business and places of, of work and, and all kinds of the culture taking place. The more you walk, as opposed to just drive through, the more attached you become. I think that principle is extremely applicable, applicable for the church. I think there are some of you that have constantly your entire life been driving through church. Right? It, you, you've, you've, you've been in church, you've been around church, you've driven in and out of it, but you've never really got out of the car and just walked in church. Now, the church can be an extremely awkward place. It can. 
It can be difficult. There's, there's barriers, there's cultures, there's people, there's messiness, there's sin. There is all of that. But with all of her warts and all of her wrinkles, that's how the Lord is building a community here. Here's how I want to suggest as we close today that you stop driving through the church and you start walking in it. Would you consider serving here? I mean, join, join a team. Do, do something. We've got all kinds of things to do. You know, God has made you to do something in his church. Like some of you, some of you love spreadsheets. Like I, I don't know who you are yet, but I'm sure we need some spreadsheets made. That might be your gift to the church. You know, others of you, you know, you build websites. Like, we always want to have a great website. So maybe, maybe that's your gift to the church, you know. Others of you might be kind of teachers or communicators or evangelists, and, and we want to equip you to do that. But, but find your gift and serve. And the best way to do it is just to do it by trial and error, right? Like, I'm going to try to do this, and if I can't do it well, then I'll just try something else. There's, there's no real magic potion to it. It's, it's just a matter of doing it. Another way is for you to connect. Connect with other people. Like, linger after church. Like, I know, I get it. Like, meeting new people is not always fun. But just linger for a minute and meet somebody. Engage with somebody. Do life with somebody. Commit to joining one of our community circles. We're launching our midweek groups where we'll meet in homes and we'll do food together and talk about the Bible together and just enjoy life together. Will you, like, actually commit to one? And when I say commit, I don't mean sign up on the paper and possibly attend occasionally. I mean, make it a priority. Like, pen it in your calendar or, or digitalize it if you're, nobody writes calendars anymore, but put it in there and move your other life events around that. There's an idea. Connect. Give. Give of your finances. If you want to put your money where your mouth is, if you want to invest in something, the local church is a great place to do that. And I promise you this. When you start investing in something, you want it to do well, Right? You don't invest in your 401k and be like, ah, whatever happens to that, that's all good. We'll just figure that out later. No, you want to see your 401k thrive and grow. You're checking your statements ridiculously often. Would you do that with the church? Would you consider investing financially? And then lastly, join the church. We believe that, that church membership is actually biblical. You're going to be hearing about this in coming weeks, but we're going to offer our first membership class in October. And this is an opportunity. This is not a country club membership, so there's not like benefits package that comes with it. It means you're committing to the life of Jesus' kingship. And so we're going to share some more about what that looks like, but, but have that on your radar that we are going to ask you to formally commit to us and say, I'm in this thing. I am in this church, and I am joining and committing my commitment to her. Respond to Ephesians chapter 4 by giving all of yourself to the one who gave all of himself to the church. Only when you feel your need for the church will you see the church's need for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for challenging us and showing us what it means to be a believer. Uh, Lord, I, I pray now that if perhaps there's some here today that, that, don't, that don't know Jesus and, and have not made him the king of their heart, that perhaps you might stir that up in them to do that today. Uh, Lord, for those of us who struggle with driving through the church and not walking in the church, I pray that you might stir new and fresh convictions in them to do that. Lord, for those of us who have been in the church and are scarred and wounded by it and, 
and have bad tastes in our mouth from it, Lord, I pray that you would remove that, that you would show them the sweetness of belonging to people and to your son, Jesus, and that you would renew that in our church, Lord. Again, we thank you for giving us this time together, the freedom to worship. We pray all these things in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus. Amen.